little snappy tune. My mom's not here, I'd tell you the story, you know, she brought me up as a good Baptist boy that I should never dance, and then I found that uh, whenever the um, prodigal son came back home, they had a dance. I said, Mom, what have you done to me all my life? Anyway, that's the excuse I leave to my wife whenever I won't take her dancing. It's my mom's fault. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 5 now. We're turning to chapter 5, and I, I, um, as I often do, I like to give kind of an overview of the chapter. We're not going to get to do that this morning. We will do that coming up as the Lord lays that on my heart. Uh, but uh, I got uh, really just buried in something that uh, stuck deeply in my heart, and that was just the first phrase of the fifth of the first verse of chapter five. But let's read down through. Oh, I don't know, verse twenty-one, just to get a feel and a flavor for this chapter uh, as we spend the next couple weeks outlining what this chapter is about. This chapter really begins to turn pace in the book. The, the fourth chapter was largely about the church. Uh, this become, and the new man's action. Uh, but this comes very, becomes very practical and pointed and uh, becomes part of our practice. And as we look at that, especially when we get up, I think there's a heavy masculine feel to chapter five uh, because the Lord is... Um, uh, created patriarchy as what it is. There will be patriarchy. Uh, patriarchy is just father rule. The Bible presents it clearly, uh, and uh, it will never be overcome. Men will always rule. The question becomes, what kind of men rule? Either good men, godly men, or bad men, sinful men. And um, so this, this has a heavy masculine tent to it. Uh, it tells a husband how to be a good husband, how to love his wife, how to take care of his children, what work should look like. And then finally, um, in chapter 6, he says, be strong in the Lord and put on the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Of course, this works for every church member, male and female. But there's a heavy masculine ethic here because of the provider protector role of the man not only in the in the god's economy for the family but in the church and the leadership of the church and therefore uh, we've disconnected this today but the leadership of the church should flow out into the leadership of the community and into uh, the leadership of our nation as it once did so there's a heavy ethic of that here we'll work on that and it's very practical so this morning's bent's going to head that direction just a fair warning to begin with. Let's read this passage, though, uh, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. That's what caught me this week. I can't get past that, uh, that we are to imitate God. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, it's simple, but yet it's so very varied and complex. Be imitators of God as beloved children, as his children, as the children of the Heavenly Father, as children are patterned after their father and mother's life. We should be, therefore, imitators of our Heavenly Father's. Uh, and the example of that is to walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness, 
must not even be named among you as proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But of course they are in, in the light of you imitating God. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Wow, does that take place today? For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Then being light, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose darkness, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time here, because the days are evil. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is, what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's go to the Lord. In prayer, Father, thank you for your word this day, how gracious and true you are, how faithful you are to tell us who you are and what you've done so that we can be imitators of you. Uh, I feel a specific burden as a, as a male, as a man, as a pastor, as a leader of your people in this place, and a leader of my family. And as a due representative of what it means to be a godly man in this community, I feel that in every man that claims the blood of Christ should feel that. Every Christian should. Go with us as we go through these things, Father, and help us to identify what you would have us do to live the life, to imitate you so that others would see you and us, certainly, but so that we would glorify you as your people in your church, imminently. Father, thank you for this day, these words, this truth. Go past my simple work. Speak directly to the hearts of your people through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we gather this morning, I, I want to remind you that the name of this, we've been doing this since I showed up last June, so a year and four months in, and probably a little ahead of schedule, but these last two chapters will take some time. But the name of this series has been Ephesians, Treasures So Rich. Uh, the subtitle is important this morning, The Power to Change the Man, The Power to Change the Culture. The power to change the man, and because the man is changed, the culture indeed should change. So the apostle identifies a great truth here at the top of chapter 5. He, he says the change should be no less than when we imitate God. 
What does it mean to imitate God? I think it's the basis of this for the Christian and, and where this is going. And I said I'm going to put a masculine bent to this this morning, and I don't mean to leave out the women. But I think as you hear what I'm going to say this morning, that if men would be the men that they were supposed to be and live the lives that they're supposed to be, if the men are sitting in this church this day, if the men who call themselves Christians hearing my voice this day would live and be the men that God has called them to be, that the rest would fall in place around us. In fact, that's how God has set it up, is that men are to be the men he's called them to be, and in doing so, they'll be the husbands that he has called them to be. They'll be the leaders in church that he's called him to be, and that means that women can be who they've been called to be. It is God's perfect plan. This is not mine, beloved. This is God's perfect plan. So it, it ponders a question that I often ask when I'm, when I'm uh, it's an opening question that I ask young men because when I offer the gospel or I'm doing street preaching, no matter whether it's here or downtown Philadelphia, I ask this question, what does it mean to be a man? And I use this to strike up a conversation because if they'll just think about it just briefly, it's a deep, deep question. What does it mean to be a man? And it's a question that as I look at it is something that I spent my entire adult life in ministry trying to fully come to terms with. And it's a question that's essential to be gotten right, for me to get right and for you to get right this morning, beloved, especially in today's culture. Why is that? Because what it means to be a man has never been so more so in the United States under attack than it is today since the time of the garden. It's been per perverted and it's been taken so far out of culture and society that young men have no place to go to learn where it means to be a good man and what it means to be a man. So that same question has come to me in a bit of a different form this week. How do I start to make young boys into men? And I've got these pictures this morning, bear with me. I may not get there. i got to jump ahead of the last song to do that. There you go. See those guys? The question came to me this week, how do I start to make young boys into men? Look at those cuties. Are they up there? Okay, they're up there. This is the uh, some of the kids from down to, down to school. The picture you see on the screen I call the Future Warriors Club. And we just gotten done teaching uh, Latin, how to conjugate a Latin verb or decline a Latin noun. And I pray that by God's good grace that he'll teach me how to teach them to become what the mascot of the school portends. And that mascot, there, I'm a little rough in doing this. You'll see that. You see that mascot? That is young David standing with his sling um, as he slew Goliath a young warrior, and make them into what you see behind there, a king, an immortal warrior of the Lord Jesus Christ. A man who can take on all foes, a man who is not afraid, a man who's not misunderstood in who he is before God. That's my goal is to teach them. How do I teach them what it means to be men and to become immortal warriors for Christ? And of course, the answer to that question means you have to understand the problem in a way that you can present the right answers and effects to repair the damages uh, that has been caused, right? You can't misdiagnose this and say it's ADHD. You can't misdiagnose it and say it's something it's not. 
because we must understand where we've gone wrong so that we can understand where and what needs to be taught to these young men to make them understand that question, what does it mean to be a man? And I've got one simple answer to what is wrong. And it's a biblical answer, and it's not a mystery. It's fatherlessness. Fatherlessness. That's pertinent to me this morning as I've thought about this over the last several weeks. Those young boys at the basis of my heart and my prayer life as my own sons, all the men that I come in contact, the men at this church, I want them to become fearless warriors for Christ, immortal warriors for God. I want them to imitate, therefore be imitators of God. I want them to imitate God. And what's the problem here? It's some level of fatherlessness. Too many of the young men in that picture do not have a father in the home. And then if he is there, what kind of father is he? Is he an immortal warrior, immortal, immortal warrior for Christ? Does he know what to teach his young son? Has he been taught what it means to be a man? Do you know what it means to be a man? Or is he clueless about these things, just bouncing along in life, taking the worldly understanding of what it means to be a man? Well, let me just enumerate the statistics here from the America First Policy Institute. They say this, unfortunately, broken families, fatherlessness, and the government stepping in to take over traditional parenting duties like instilling values are an increasingly common fact in the life of America. According to data from 2022, there are approximately 18.3 million children across, the American, across America who live without a father in the home, compromising about one in every four children, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. This number is a major international outlier. This is amazing to me. With the U.S. having the highest rate globally of children living in single-parent households, as of 2019, a staggering 23% of children lived with just one parent and no other adults, which was over three times the global average of 7%, according to Pew Research. It's a uniquely American problem. In China and India, the number stands at 3 and 4%, respectively. The statistics are even more staggering for black children, with nearly 50% living with a single mother. Overall, single mothers head up 80% of single parent households in the United States. Sadly, fatherless families are four times more likely to raise children in poverty, poverty according to the Census Bureau, and research suggests that 84% of homeless families are headed by women. Additional data shows that 71% of high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. Across America, data indicates there are approximately 18.3 million children who live without a father in the home. In one study, 70% of youth in state-operated facilities, that is incarcerated, or in that type of facilities, were from single-parent homes. The numbers are in, and I know you already know this. It just helps to hear them in your ears a little bit. But fatherless is a damning epidemic in our country today. 
and it's an epidemic that's unique to the United States of America. John MacArthur wrote this, the only hope for peace in a society is masculine, virtuous men. Evil abounds absolutely everywhere. How men respond to it, to its presence, determines the survival and well-being of a society. Let me say that again. Evil abounds everywhere. How men respond to its present deter presence determines the survival and well-being of that society. One psychologist said masculinity has taken responsibility to reduce evil and produce good. But no culture will ever rise above the character of its men, its fathers. Paul Washer said, said it a little bit more abruptly. He said, men, if you were ever to get in touch with your feminine side, crucify it. Bodie Bauckham said this, weak and faulty men come from weak and faulty fathers with weak and faulty worldviews. What's happened? How has it gotten to be what we see today? I think everybody has an um, opinion on that, but the Bible tells us specifically what has happened to the men and to the men who have gone before us. Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 20. Genesis, Exodus chapter 20. We're just going to read a couple of verses there, verses 4 and 6 through 6. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Now, this is the passage in your scripture, that one of two passages that has the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, we'll begin in verse 3 actually, because I want to set this with the Ten Commandments. You see it there. The word of the Lord is this. Um, I'll go back to verse 1. <laughs> and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's about to give them the law. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. That's idolatry. Idolatry is anything that you put before God. Idolatry then, going back to Ephesians 5.1, is not imitating God because God would never put anything before himself. And in verses 5 through 6, 4, 5, and 6 here, he's going to tell us the ramifications of idolatry listen to them. You've heard me say this time and time again. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, verse 5, for I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Did you catch it? He's visiting the iniquities of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of the children. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm paying for my father's sins. That simply means that what I did was grow up with my father, and it's my father's sins that I'm usually living because he is my teacher. He is the one I follow. And if I had a weak father, if I had a father that didn't know anything about what it meant to be an immortal warrior, that it meant to be a man of God, 
If I had a father who didn't teach me what it meant to imitate God, I had a father that sent me into and sent my children, his children's children and my children's children to the third and fourth generation. And you can see how this has exploded and continues to grow. Fatherless generation after fatherless generation keeps creating fatherless generations. And so here we are because they didn't do what? They didn't follow the statutes and the commandments of God. Just turn with me to Exodus 34, verse 7. Moses makes the new tablets. He's bringing them down the mountain. Verse 7 says, And keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will, and he's speaking of God, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It goes on. Uh, Deuteronomy 55, just let me read this to you. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the, Deuteronomy chapter 5, I'm sorry. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The curse is generational and it has a generational aspect because when bad fathers do what they do, it carries over into their sons and their sons' sons to the third and the fourth generation. And with every passing generation, the curse deepens and widens until we have what we see in the West today. It's not rocket science, is it? If you leave out the part of God's statutes and commands and teaching your son, he's not going to know and not going to be able to live out what it means to be a man. He's basically fatherless in the way that God uh, sets forth fatherlessness. And you have what you see of those young boys, most of them anyway, that I have in my school. And I believe that there's a tremendous opportunity as this school grows and this church grows to train more men who would not otherwise understand what it means to be a man. We need these type of men, fearless men, men who know the word of God, men who are willing to stand on the word of God and die for the word of God. Men who treat their wives like Christ and love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up as a fragrant offering, as it says in Ephesians 5.2 there. Because in Ephesians 5.1, we're asked to be imitators of God and then we're given an illustration of what it looks like to imitate God because we're given an illustration of Christ giving up his whole life so that we could be saved. And that is the picture of a father imitating his heavenly father to give up his life as a fragrant offering so that his sons and his son's sons will be men who understand that love. We need, shortly put, we need men. And when I write that little three-letter three noun, men, I mean biblical men. I don't mean worldly men biblical men. 1 Corinthians 16, turn with me there. Verses 13 and 14. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. 
These are poisonous words to some in our society, but Paul brings together the close of each one of his, his letters with the admonition to the leaders of the church to be exactly what he's getting ready to say here. He's going to do that in Ephesians. He does that here in Corinthians. And it's from here I want to build kind of a theology of what it means to teach men how to be men. There's one specific word that we're working towards here, and this gives us some insight into it. 1 Corinthians 16, beginning at verse 13, he gives them all of the things that he's going to give them before he ends this book, and this is it. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. You see, you cannot disconnect being a man from being loving a biblical masculine man is loving. <laughs> in fact, he's the most loving thing for his family, the most loving and precious thing for his church, and the most loving and precious thing for his community is for him to have biblical masculinity. He's putting together manhood here, biblical manhood, and being strong and being firm and being faithful together with love because those things go together. There's five imperative verbs here. They come out as commands to the men of the church of Corinth, to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and do it all in love. What would our, what would our society look like today if that was the first thing that all the men in leadership, if that was the first principle that they exercised? was to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, to imitate God, right? Act like men, be strong, and everything that you do, do it in love. Our society and the persistent drumbeat of feminism would have you believe that any form of masculinity is toxic and unable to be capable of love. Well, the way they define love, it is difficult. But the way the Bible defines love and masculinity those two things go hand in hand. The Bible says just the opposite here. True masculinity is love. True masculinity will not stand aside and let evil thrive. That is the very definition of love. Faith, manhood, being strong, and love go together according to the scriptures. And as I said earlier, these five verbs here are imperatives. That means they're commands in the Greek. Be watchful. And that is to be alert, be awake. Know what's going on. Have situational awareness. Understand from a biblical perspective what your worldview should be and how you should act and live in this world as a man. Stand firm in the faith. Stand for truth. Stand for the things of God. Do not compromise. Right is right and wrong is wrong. Men today have all but abdicated their manhood to the spirit of the culture of compromise and androgyny. You know what androgyny is? That's what Satan wants. He wants to just destroy the distinctions that are good between male and female. He tries to get women to do what men are supposed to do and men to do what women are supposed to do. And do you see that playing out today in our culture and our society? Stand firm in the faith. You know what's right because God has given you an understanding of what's right and you must stand firm in that faith. That standing is faith, not self-gratification, not self-glory, not self-aggrandization, 
but it is imitating God through the glory of God, men. Act like men. Act like men. To become a man, to exhibit courage in the face of danger and be strong. That word strong is translated as be healthy and be vigorous. So it talks about physical strength indeed, but it also carries the connotation of force. And a biblical masculine man has that force because he has the authority. He has the authority because he's taken the responsibility that God's given him. And that is to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like a man and be strong and do all that you do in love. And when men take up the responsibility that God has given them, they receive that authority, that force. You can feel it around godly men. They have the power to stand when things are wrong. Now, I don't mean this to be confused with bravado, but doing what needs to be done and doing it in a way that pleases God. Nowhere does the Bible say that masculinity and being a man are disconnected from godliness. In fact, it's just the opposite. Jesus was the most masculine man and godly man that walked the face of this earth. Yet our society has made manhood and masculinity out to be dangerous out to be toxic. Godly manhood is never toxic, and the one who sins by exploiting manhood for his own personal gain and pleasure does not negate the truth of what goodness of biblical masculinity is. There have been many men that have gone before, and that's why I said it's going to be patriarchy. It's either you have one decision to make. Will it be godly patriarchy or evil patriarchy? Biblical masculinity defeats evil and protects the innocent and is given to man for that purpose. Let me say that again. Biblical masculinity defeats evil and protects the innocent and is given to man for that purpose. Watching, standing, acting as men and having a ready willingness to be strong is not to strong arm for personal gain, but the admonition is that in the final chapter and verse of Ephesians that we stand on behalf of others. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10, and 11, Finally, beloved, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. That same word, strong, is the same word he's using. He wants you to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's not our might. It's not our own acting for our own good. It is our acting for others' good and God's glory. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Do you see these words, strong, stand, act like a man against the schemes of the devil? but most men don't know how to do this. They're lost somewhere in the generational curse and don't have a clue how to be men and live for Christ. They live for self-fulfillment, for worldly pleasure, and are dull to the realities of evil around them. We need more men who act like men. We need men who will stand for truth, who will give their whole lives for truth. So how do we reverse that? How does that take place? What do we need to do? What do we need to do in the church? What do you need to do specifically, men, what do we need to do with the young men that I was talking about at the school? Well, turn to the book of Zechariah with me. I know it's going to be dis difficult to find, isn't it? Not Zephaniah, but Zechariah. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And this is an Old Testament theme. Haggai, Zechariah, and then Malachi and Matthew. 
Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, God's given this, God's given this, uh, this prescription throughout Scripture. I think you probably already know it, but let's hear it from Zechariah the prophet. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edu, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. You remember the, the cycle in Old Testament Israel. Uh, the fathers wouldn't teach the sons, and then the sons would go distant from the Lord, and then the Lord's anger would, would come because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and this discipline would become because of God's hot wrath and anger, his judgment against the sins of the people of Israel. The Lord, verse 2, was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, uh, and then this is what the Lord does, he, he sends a prophet to teach the people how to reorder their lives so that they're back under his blessings, back under the covenant blessings. And this is directly uh, for us today is that if we will turn back to the Lord, if my people who are called by my name, right, if they will turn back to the Lord and repent of their sins, if the fathers who have done wrong will do that, there is great hope that the Lord will restore you and give you the ability to be the father he's called you to be. It's never too late in the economy of God. Therefore, it's never too late for the young men down at the school. It's never too late for the men in this community or the men of this church. The Lord was very angry with your fathers, verse 3. Therefore, say to them that, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 4, what's the answer? Don't be like your fathers. What's Paul's admonition in Ephesians 5? Imitate your heavenly father. If you ever wonder, men, what to do, it's right here in Scripture. Imitate your heavenly father. Do not, verse 4, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. The answer is to turn back to God. Men do what needs to be done and need to become doers of that which must be done. Let me say that again. Men do what needs to be done and need to become doers of that which must be done. And when we take up that responsibility, my men, God gives us authorities to be the men he's called us to be. God empowers this in men. Men do what needs to be done and need to become doers of that which must be done. And God empowers this in men. Turn with me quickly to Joshua chapter 1. We've only got an hour or so left. <laughs> Joshua chapter 1. This is what I noticed this week when I was studying. It started with Adam and Eve. It moved to Noah. It went from Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, to Joseph, to Moses, to Joshua. All these men were called to be men. 
But each one of them had some kind of problem. Moses said, I can't speak. What are you talking about, Lord? I, you know, he got him there by the burning bush, and he said, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. You're going to tell him that I am sent you. That's going to be good enough. Throw down, get out, tell him we're leaving. Moses said, I can't do that. I'm, I'm too weak. Each one of those men said something along those lines. So there's no room for you to say that today. Because it's in what... God has told Joshua here, we're going to learn a new word that's very important for each one of you men this morning. Let's read these words. After the death of Moses, you see, God had this plan. He knew Moses was going to die before they went into the promised land. He knew Joshua was going to be the next man. He empowered Moses. He's going to empower Joshua. But it's the way he did that. It's the way he did that that's going to correlate with 1 Corinthians 16. Stick with me here. It's going to make good sense. After the death of Moses... The servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua was shaking in his boots because he knew what that meant, right? It's you're up, buddy. It's the bottom of the ninth. There's two on, two outs, and we need three points to win the game. Joshua, grab your club. Let's go, Right? Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I'm giving to them. To the people of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, towards the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No pressure, Josh. Right? No pressure at all. If you do this, the people prosper. If you don't, he was calling Joshua to be a man, to stand firm in the faith, right? To be strong, act like a man, and do all that you do in love. Verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. For just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. My, my ears would have perked up. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to your fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according, listen to, according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left. This will give you good success wherever you go. Same promise, right? To act like a man, you have to be a biblical man. And when you take up the responsibility of becoming a biblical man, you will have the authority that goes with being a biblical man, and you will lead other biblical men to greater goods. Strong and courageous men. Strong and courageous men. You know what that synthesizes to here as we put all these passages together? To the word fortitude. To the word fortitude. And it's the gospel that allows man to utilize his masculinity for good. Without the gospel, masculinity will be used for grievous evil in the world. But it's through the work of God in the man that makes him strong and courageous. It's through the work of God in the man that brings all of these principles together. Because this strong and courageous man, this man that stands this man that is strong, this man that is firm in the faith and does everything that he does out of love is 
a man of fortitude. You haven't thought about that word. I promise you, you haven't thought about it enough if you have. The key here is that the scripture is presenting something in Joshua that's married to what he's saying in Ephesians 6 and 1 Corinthians 16. John Calvin recognized this in his commentary written on 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. In the third exhortation, it is, quote, in the third exhortation, he, the apostle, stirs them up to what is called a manly fortitude. What is that? What is a manly fortitude? Fortitude, let me give you the textbook definition of what that is from Webster's Dictionary. Strength of mind that enables a person to encounter danger or bear pain or adversity with courage. Now, that's not the theological definition, although there's a lot of theology in that. Fortitude is the strength of mind that enables a person to encounter danger or bear pain or adversity with courage. It is a quality of man's character that involves courage and staying power. It is the quality of a man's character that gives him the will to overcome evil solely because it is evil. Because if you fail to do that as a Christian man, you're not imitating God. And the opposite of fortitude, and I don't know this in anything other than what I'm telling you here this morning, is compromise. The men who know what evil is and turn their head and look the other way, compromise. They keep their heads down and they do some things they don't agree with so they can keep the money coming in. They can keep the peace. They can keep what they believe is their own stability. Men who willingly let go of what they know is right to get something they want compromise on what God called them to be. This is not manhood. It's pragmatism and politics. I mean, it explains how we got transgenderism and why the culture looks like it does today. Joshua was told to be strong and courageous, and this was more than just mere physical strength, beloved. It has a mental strength. It has a capacity beyond that in the man who knows he's been forgiven. And in the weeks to come as we work through Ephesians 5, I will tell you that it also has a component that it is a godly man who is married and has strength of mind and courage that the unmarried man does not have. Joshua was facing giants, beloved. Why would he, why should he fear? Because there was giants in the land of Canaan. David was facing giants. It was physically impossible for them to be defeated, but fortitude requires understanding that doing what is right is not just a fight, it's the fight for the Lord. That's why it requires to be watchful and faithful. Because when David defeated Goliath, he knew that he wasn't physically capable of defeating a 10-foot-tall, 450-pound man. But he knew that man would never stand against the armies 
of the living world because of the promises of the Lord, because he had faith. John MacArthur says about fortitude is the core virtue of manliness. Fortitude is a firmness and strength of the soul that faces danger with courage and bears loss and pain without complaint. You sound like Jesus, beloved? Jesus knew all along how horribly difficult that cross was going to be, but he walked every day one step closer. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, imitate God, and then he gives us the illustration of Jesus who gave himself up as a fragrant offering. Fortitude is a man with strength of soul that faces danger with courage and bears loss and pain without complaint. How do we make men like this? Only through the work of the gospel. A man who doesn't compromise, even when there is danger, and even when that danger escalates to fear and pain, fortitude is a combination of the conviction, courage, and endurance. It is the willingness and desire to take risk, literally the desire to cause risk if necessary, or create challenges that are not already there to destroy evil and to do what is good. To attack difficulty, to challenge difficulty, head on to bear suffering with courage, to right wrongs. This is what makes a man a man and this kind of man in whom a woman finds her total security. This is the kind of man the woman finds her protection in and that's the kind of relationship that lets a woman's femininity flourish. As I said, there's a component of the wife here that we're going to add as we go through this. Men are those who should be the protectors, the purifiers, who secure their wives and children, who accomplish all that needs to be done to reduce evil in a society and to produce good. What does it mean to be a man? I want to make men like this out of the young men at the school. I want them to become immortal warriors. I want the men of this church to become immortal warriors for the Lord Jesus Christ. I want them to be masculine men. And to do that, Simply put, you must begin, you must begin to imitate God. And your living example, beloved, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to a close this morning, as these words bear in our heart this day, I just pray that you would do with them what you purpose to do, to work in the men of this sanctuary, to work in the young men at that school, for us to be imitators of you, our Heavenly Father, for us to be children of our Heavenly Father, for us to be men that you've called us to be, Father. Men with courage, men with conviction, men who are willing to stand put down evil and protect those whom they love. I would bid us this morning that that's the definition of biblical masculinity and in seeing the work of Christ, the definition of what love truly is. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Go with us in this effort. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. All right, if the men are going to help me with